You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. Welcome to our study through the Book of Acts. We're calling it, We Are All Witnesses, Part 2. I want to invite you to grab your Bible, turn to the Book of Acts, and get ready to study God's Word with us. good to see you. It's, uh, it's great to have the rest of you at all the campuses join us. Uh, we're here at Rolling Meadows and really thrilled to study this passage together. You need a Bible and you need to turn it to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8 uh, verses 4 to 25 today. Something you might not know about me is that I am a, I am a speech major in college. Uh, I was supposed to do was told that I should do something I liked, and so I found, I found public speaking interesting, and so I became a public <clears throat> speech major. One of the things that you learn in um, any kind of public speaking is that there are different ways that you can communicate what you want somebody to do, right? So if I wanted to warn you about a particular thing, I could say to you, <clears throat> don't do this particular thing, right? Don't, don't cheer for the Packers. Your heart will be let down right? Or I could tell you story, I could tell you a story about how my heart was ruined by the Packers. The story usually has more, more power. So here, here's, here's an example. Uh, my mother-in-law, she uh, would watch shows on TV and she would come to the conclusion that um, the worst thing for you to do when you're skiing is to ski through the trees because you might hit a tree. So whenever my wife like, would go out skiing with her friends, she would say, don't ski in the woods because you'll hit a tree. Don't ski in the woods or you'll hit a tree. All right. Well, that has a particular power to it. Or you could do it this way. You could make the same point this way. <clears throat> so I was talking to a uh, doctor in Whistler, British Columbia, on one occasion. This is one of the big ski areas in the, in the world. And I asked him, so what is the craziest thing you've seen? And he said, well, here's the craziest thing. This, this guy was skiing through the trees, and uh, he came to a little bit of a clearing, and there was this little mini cliff and this massive pool of fresh powder. And the guy was so excited, he came off that cliff and did his little back scratcher with his skis, and he came down. But what he didn't know was just beneath the surface of the powder, there was a, a tree, a sharp tree, sticking up. And so when he landed, he landed kind of on his back, and the tree went straight through him. So when the ski patrol came and, and found him, they had to, like pull him off of the thing, put him in their little sled, bring him down to the hospital. He said, my job was to, to look after it. And he said, Jeff, I'm telling you that when I laid him on his side and I had a look at the wound, I came down to it and I could see directly through his body. You could see from one side to the other. Now the guy was okay, okay? But maybe you shouldn't ski through the trees. You know what I mean? might be a holy experience. <laughs> so, but you see, there's a power, there's a power to the story that is far greater than, than just telling you not to ski through the trees. Now, if I heard that, when I, after I heard it, I was like, I'm never going to ski through the trees ever again. There's a power in story. There's a power in example. Um, when we read narratives in the Bible, when we read stories in the Bible, that is actually one of the purposes, is that they're supposed to convey to you some kinds of examples that you should follow and some examples you shouldn't. So when we read the book of Acts, what we're supposed to be looking for is how has God been acting in the lives of these people and what should we learn from the example of these people and how he's been acting in, in their lives? So this passage, Acts chapter 8, uh, 
verses 4 to 25, I think has three of these examples. We're supposed to learn something about our relationship to God through three different examples. One of them is the scattered, the second is the Samaritans, and the third is the sorcerer. The scattered, the Samaritans, and the sorcerer. So let me, let me point out the scattered first, verses 4 and 5 of Acts chapter 8. Say this, now those who were, there's the word, scattered, went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now, what happened just previous to this, of course, is that Stephen, this godly man, uh, decided that he was going to preach a sermon to all of those uh, folks who were uh, pushing back against him, the people who were a part of the religious leadership. They were pushing back against him and criticizing him and saying that he had uh, done all sorts of horrible things regarding the, the Jewish traditions and faith. And so he ends up standing up and preaching this sermon. The sermon ends with a really pointed uh, language saying, you guys are basically hypocrites and you're always rejecting the, the messengers of God and you rejected Jesus. You, in fact, murdered God and now his blood is basically on your heads. Now, that's not the kind of sermon that people like to hear, especially if you're the ones who did the killing of Jesus. And so they got so angry that they rushed him, they grabbed him, threw him outside the city, and they stoned him to death. And this, this opened the door for a mass persecution to take place in, in the city of Jerusalem. And the people who were in Jerusalem, who were kind of part of this beginning Christian community, had come. they decided that what we're going to do <clears throat> is that we're, we're going to run for our lives, because I'm not going to stick around and wait for somebody to come to my house and drag me off. We're going to escape, and maybe we'll go to our family. Maybe we'll just go to the nearby area. Philip, <clears throat> this guy, he went to Samaria. He was scattered, and he, and he ended up going to Samaria. And when he gets there, what does he do? He preaches the word, which is really interesting. That basically everybody who was scattered went about preaching the word. Or, or in other words, wherever Christians went, there went the gospel. Is that true? I mean, let's take it out of that context and put it in ours. Can you say that wherever Christians go, there goes the gospel? Certainly in the New Testament, that is the pattern, right? If you have a Christian person, where they end up, whatever circumstances, situation they end up in, they end up bringing the gospel. They, to use the language of the Bible, they bring the aroma of Christ with them. One of my favorite passages along these lines is actually in Philippians. Uh, the background of Philippians is that Paul is in prison and he's writing this letter to the Philippian church, he writes of several letters from, from this particular prison. You need to know something about Roman prisons. They are not like our prisons. You don't get three meals a day. You don't get a bunk. You don't get a toilet inside. You get none of that. The only way that you're taken care of at all is if you have friends who provide for you uh, blankets or food or any of those things. It's also kind of a hole in the ground. And if you are a high priority prisoner, they will, they will attach you to a guard or two of them. And we can attach you to the wall and leave you alone, but there's a chance you might still escape in that situation. And so we're going to attach you to guards. Paul was a high priority prisoner and he was attached to two guards. And so the book of Philippians was actually dictated to somebody else who wrote it down. One of his buddies who brought some food or whether sat across from him and they wrote it down as a secretary. While these guards, listen, the guards would rotate. You know, you're not going to be 24 hours attached to Paul. You know, you'd be there for six hours and you have another six hours and six hours, that kind of thing. But around the clock, Paul was, was guarded. So here's what he says in the beginning of Philippians in this circumstance. I want you to know, he dictates to his secretary, brothers, that what has happened to me, what has happened to him? Well, he's been arrested and attached and in, to guards and he's in the hole in the ground a prisoner of the Romans, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, which is weird, right? Because putting Paul in prison is supposed to not advance the gospel. How has it advanced the gospel? 
so that it's become known throughout the whole, <laughs> sorry, imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. The whole imperial guard, do you know how hard it would have been for Paul to preach the gospel to the imperial guard? They're like untouchable. It's required for them to believe that the Caesar is God himself. They're hived off from everyone else. But here's Paul, seriously, here's Paul. They, uh, they, they arrest him, they attach him to guards. What do you think they talk about? Can you imagine being attached to the apostle Paul? So what's your name? Titus. Hi, Titus. Tell me, do you know who Jesus is? <laughs> right? And then the next six hours would be about Jesus. Titus, I'll see you tomorrow. You'll be back. Yes? Yes. Right? And he'd come back. And then the next guy comes in. What's your name? My name is Justice. Well, Justice, do you know about Jesus? I mean, it would be the same thing over and over again. Day after day after day after day after day. Wherever Paul went, there went the gospel. And so because Paul was in prison and wherever he went, there went the gospel. The people who were attached to him, he was proclaiming the gospel to. So at the end of Philippians, same book, the end of Philippians. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. In other words, hey, they've provided me like, like, couple guys all the time that I can just talk to whenever and they're in the Caesar's household and so the gospel has gone everywhere because wherever I go the gospel goes and then when I preach it to them and they take it they wherever it goes the gospel goes and so all of a sudden you have the gospel reaching through Caesar's household a place that nobody else would ever be able to get had Paul not in prison wherever the gospel wherever, wherever Christians go there goes the gospel my father-in-law was a pastor for about 35 years. He told me a story one time. He said that his friend was going into um, a nursing home. He's the last years of his life. His wife had died, and they were wheeling him into the nursing home. My father-in-law said he was the push guy pushing. And as he was pushing this man through the sliding doors going into the nursing home, this man said out loud, leaned back and he said to my father-in-law, ah, my last mission field. I gotta be honest, I, I, I've not always felt that way. I know I'm a pastor, I'm supposed to say, yes, wherever I go, there goes the gospel. But I was part of my son's baseball teams for years. I, I saw the parents on that baseball team as a nuisance right? Because their, their kid was a pain and he didn't feel the ball right or, you know, he always demanded more playing time or the parents yelled at the refs, not in the way I wanted them to yell at the refs. There's a certain way you should yell at the refs and it was my way and not their, like, kidding. But I would sit there in the stands with these, these people and I would be so focused on the baseball that it never occurred to me that the reason probably the Lord had placed me in this situation is that I have access now to all of these dear people. Guys, we would travel together, stay in hotels together. They would bring margarita machines and they would make these margaritas and I would stay in the room because I'd be like, I don't want to go down there and deal with that. I missed it. <laughs> I missed it. So where's the Lord scattered you? I mean, you have workplaces and sports teams and your neighborhood and your school. You know that all of those places need, need the gospel. I was riding my scooter this morning and coming down the street here to the Rolling Meadows campus. And I was just thinking to myself, all of these houses and people are out in front. All of these people all need the gospel. It's the answer to all the things in their lives. And who... Is going to share it with them. Who's the many people who are, who are, Lord, would you place people in the lives of these people so they could hear it? But the only way that's going to happen is if the scattered Christians recognize that their scattering is meant to be a blessing to the world. See, Christians, according to Francis Chan, are a lot like poo, that when we gather together, just follow me here, when we gather together and we're stuck together, we stink. But then when you scatter us around, we're a blessing. No? 
All right. Where have you been scattered? So we learn something from the scattered. Second, we learn something from the Samaritans. Verse 4 again. Acts 8. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Uh, I, I need to stop with that word Samaria. Uh, if you've been in church at all, you probably have heard a pastor at some point talk about how Jews and Samaritans didn't get along very well. So let me, let me just recover some of that ground for some of you. And some of you have never heard about that before. The Samaritans lived directly north of Judea. So it's like different states, okay, different states. And uh, the, the Jews in Judea, which is where Jerusalem was, did not like the Samaritans who lived directly north of them. And there was a reason for that. The Samaritans were considered half-breed. They weren't pure Jewish. So when the people of Israel came into the promised land, God told them, don't intermarry with the people of the land. Don't intermarry with the the Canaanites. Well, some people did, and their descendants were called the Samaritans. So their history, their history is of disobedience to God, according to a Jew. They had their own temple. The Samaritans didn't like the temple in Jerusalem, didn't even think it was legitimate. So they built their own one. On Mount Gerizim. And when other uh, kings, like the Syrian king, would come in and say, listen, we want to take your temples, both in Samaria and in Jerusalem, we want to take your temples and now make them temples to our god Zeus, very common thing for an invading emperor to do, take the existing temples and turn them into worship places for his gods. We want to take your temples and turn them into Zeus. What do you say? The Jews were like come and get it over my dead body. And the Samaritans were like, yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So not only half-breeds racially, but also just their commitment to God from the Jewish point of view was that they were sellouts. You weren't allowed to marry. If you were Jew or you weren't allowed to marry Samaritans, that was a disgrace. In fact, you weren't even supposed, if you're a guy, you're not even supposed to talk to a Samaritan at all, especially not a Samaritan woman, which is why Jesus breaks all the rules in John 4, where he starts talking to this Samaritan woman by the well. And she's like, do you not know the rules? I'm a Samaritan woman. You're a Jewish guy. We're not supposed to interact. I don't even know why you're here, she basically says. Invaders who came to Judea, let me show you a little map real quick here. So like I said, Samaria sat, here it is, sits between Judea and Galilee. If you know your Bible, you know Jesus did lots of ministry in Galilee and lots in Judea. So Jews live here and here. Sometimes the invading armies would come from the north through Galilee, and they want, of course, get to Jerusalem here in the south. And so the Samaritans have a choice to make when the invading armies come in. Hey, do we let you come through, or do we tell you to get lost because we respect our Jewish half-brothers and sisters. On nearly every occasion, the Samaritans were like, come on, we put a red carpet out for you. (laughs) Just come on through. How would you feel about that? You know, if Michigan was always letting those Canadians come and attack us, would you be like, hey, Michigan, we love you? No, we'd be like, Michigan. That's the way that they viewed. That's the way that they viewed it. And so oftentimes, Jews who were up here in Galilee, the way that they would get to Judea, the short way was to go the way the invading armies did. The other way that they would do is come down here to the Jordan Valley, come all the way down to Jericho and go back up. Added a lot of time and danger to the trip, but the time and danger is well worth the price of not having to step foot in the land of those half-breeds. Basically, all you need to know about the Jewish and Samaritan relationship was kind of found in in, uh, Luke chapter 9, where James and John, who are called the Sons of Thunder, you can imagine why they got that name. You give your friends nicknames, right? Theirs was Sons of Thunder. Well, so they would go out, and they they would go into uh, Samaria to try to prepare the people, for they needed to go in through that way, as sickening as it was. And the Samaritans said, no, you can't come through here. We're not going to let you do that. They said, but we've got Jesus, the healer. No, 
not going to do it. So when Jesus shows up, they, they come out and they meet him and say, hey, they didn't let us go through. Can we now call down fire from heaven so we can burn them like toast? That's, that's their attitude. Of course it is. That's the way that, that's the way that Jews felt about Samaritans. Jesus, when are you going to bring the fire down from heaven and wipe them off the face of the earth? So look, when Philip went to the city in Samaria, you're supposed to go, what? Of all the places to go, you're going to this city in Samaria? Look what happened too. It's not just that he went there and they kicked him out. No, he proclaimed to them the Christ and the crowds with one Accord. All of them paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Look, un- unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who paralyzed or lamed were healed. You can imagine the joy in that city. These people who've been sick for all these years are getting healed and delivered in this city and this Jewish man has come and he shared the message about Jesus and we're so excited about it. Now this would be big time troubling news, quite honestly, to the apostles because it's a little surprising to them. I mean, they're Samaritans after all. They're they're not supposed to have what we have and yet Philip goes down and he makes this, this plea with them and he's having fruit There was a man named Simon among them who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. All of them paid attention to him, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. In other words, that's a way of saying, man, he has got some power in him in terms of his ability to manipulate the unseen world. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. It's like Luke's repeating it. Did you guys know how powerful this guy is? He's got a lot of magic, right? He's like David Blaine. Mm, Not really. I mean, like he's not, he's not, see this quarter? Look, it's behind your ear. What? He, He is actually what we commonly call today a witch doctor. And a really good one. Now, I, I, need to probably, um, I need to probably talk for just a second about, about witch doctors. <laughs> um, I have a dear friend, Ezra, who is from Kenya. And one of the things that he lives in Canada now. And one of the things that he's always tried to make a point of to me is that Westerners are crazy because they think that the only real things are physical things. And he said, if Jeff... Dude, if you could see the things that I have seen. So I called him this week and I said, Ezra, help me out. Talking about this passage, Simon, witch doctor, give me some witch doctor stories. Oh, you have time? So we, the next, so here's, here's kind of what Ezra had to say. Um, the way you became a witch doctor was that you, you, you are the son of a witch doctor, who's the son of a witch doctor, son of a witch doctor, kind of runs in the family and the, and the witch doctor and the family witch doctor, they basically collect spells over a period of time. And they have these incantations. We've actually found several of these incantations in the ancient world. You can go to villages in the, in the majority world these days, and you'll find that there's lots and lots of people who are doing these incantations. Lots of witch doctors. Witch doctors are usually the wealthiest people in the town because they're the most powerful people in the town. If you want something done, you give them money in order for them to... Make it happen. And the way they make it happen is through a manipulation of the spiritual world. People here are like, well, there's a scientific explanation to all of that. Mm. I mean, I myself have seen things that there aren't scientific explanations for. And the only reason you and I say scientific explanation is because we basically believe that the only thing that's real is physical stuff and we're stupid because that's not true. It's not true. And some people are able to manipulate the immaterial world. And these witch doctors are, are some of them. So, give you a couple of stories. Actually, Ezra sent me a video of a guy 
He was on national news in Kenya. And what happened is that he had gone and he had stolen some stuff from his neighbor's house. And he brought it into his house. And so his neighbor, instead of going back to, you know, his house and getting it from him, he confronted him first. And the guy said, you're not going to be able to ever get this stuff back because you're not strong enough and blah, blah, blah. Well, the guy who had stuff stolen from him went to the local witch doctor and said, you need to make this guy come and bring this stuff back to me. So the witch doctor did his juju. And he ended up uh, making a, a, a spell that had a snake come and wrap itself around the thief and not leave him alone until he returned all the stuff and the witch doctor himself came and released the snake from its duty. So on national news in Kenya, they brought a camera and they showed the guy and there's a snake wrapped all around him. He keeps trying to throw it off and it comes back and wraps around him. He throws it off and comes back. The whole village is like, this is crazy. They're all lining up outside because they know this guy. He's never had a snake wrapped around him before, but now he's got a snake wrapped around him constantly. The guy had a snake wrapped around him and he took all the stuff and brought it back to the guy's house and said, can you please release me from the snake? And the guy says, no, you need to learn your lesson. So he still has a snake around him. Finally, the guy said, fine, you can be released from it. And so the witch doctor has to come out, do some of his juju magic. He spends hours, and finally the snake goes away. Finally, the snake goes away. And for this, the witch doctor made lots of money. And you can get lots of things done through the witch doctor. Really good ones have a lot of power. Want another one? So sometimes there are women, this will be hard for us to... Imagine, but sometimes there are women, as they get older, they, they want to remain beautiful and young-looking. Look, young I know, I know. But in, in that part of the world, now here we just do essential oils because that's scientific. Anyway, so, um, <coughs> sorry. Seriously, it's got eucalyptus in it. What? Who cares? Who cares? Anyway, so, you go to the witch doctor, and you say, I want to remain young. I want to look young. And the witch doctor says, okay going to cost you this much. Animals, money. You bring it. He said, okay, you need to bring your friend with you. So they bring their friend and a glass jar. All right, friend, glass jar. The witch doctor does his juju magic, mixes some stuff together, and he wipes it on the face of the woman. And he says, now I need you to lean back, and I need you to exhale. And he takes the jar, and he holds it right over the woman's, right over the woman's mouth, and she exhales. And no joke, no joke, there is a mist that comes out. And it doesn't disappear. It goes into the jar, and there it is, so that the jar is misty now. Seals it all up. Still misty. Still misty. Give it to your, uh, give it to your friend. Now, your friend, you need to go hide this where nobody else can see it. Ever. They will never, ever, ever, ever find it. Go hide it. So she goes off, and she hides it. And this woman who's done this remains beautiful, inexplicably beautiful for years. Until, you know, cities grow and people come and they try to build things on land where maybe jars have been hidden. And they come and they build and the guy with the shovel digs down and crack, crack. And he looks, at, looks down and there's a, there's a jar. Well, no big deal. You just pick it up and you throw it to the side. Well, within days of this happening, this woman all of a sudden deteriorates, physically just deteriorates. Nobody can explain it. It's like she's withering in front of everybody's face. And they don't know what's happening until finally the witch doctor comes and says to the friend, what did you do with the jar? She said, well, I hid it out in there. <gasps> so she goes to the place, finds the broken jar on the side of the property where they're doing this sort of thing, brings it back to the witch doctor and says, can you fix this? He said, no, I can't do anything about it. This is the way it's going to be. The woman who initially went to the witch doctor, was dead within a week. Oh, there's a scientific explanation for that. No, there, there, there is a guy called Great that people pay money to to perform magic. That's who Simon is. Powerful shaman. Witch doctor. But here's what happens in Samaria. When they believed, he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And they were baptized, all these Samaritans, both men and women, 
even Simon, even the witch doctor himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles he performed. He was absolutely, positively amazed. Now I want you to take Simon and put him over here for a second. We're going to get back to Simon. But you see how the gospel has made this huge impact. Even the witch doctors are coming to faith in Jesus. The apostles hear about it in Jerusalem, okay? The apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God. And they sent to them Peter and John. They're going to make sure that what's happened is okay. Because it's Samaritans after all. You know, I mean, what are you talking about? They come to faith in Christ. And they came down and they prayed for them. Notice what they prayed. That they might receive the Holy Spirit for he'd not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. What in the world? Think about that. So these people come to faith in Christ. They're baptized. And then there's this gap of time. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon them when the apostles come. Is that normal? Now listen, there are people in the world who say yes, that is normal. That's the way it's supposed to work. People in Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds, this is one of the things that they say. My, when I was a, a camp counselor a number of years ago, I had a co-counsel in the camp, and when I first met him, we were sitting there talking to each other in the cabin. He was on one bunk, I was in the other bunk. And he said to me after about 20 minutes, have you had the second blessing? And I said, I don't know if I've had the first. But I say, I don't, there's, there are blessings? You know, I came from you know, mainline church, I don't know. <laughs> And he said, no, no, there's second blessing. You know, so you get saved and then there's a period of time and then you get, then you get the, the spirit coming upon you in power. Have you had that second experience? Uh, no, no, I haven't. Well, you need to have this second experience in order for you to be filled with the spirit, in order for the spirit to use you in legitimate big ways. So we're gonna be going into camp this thing and I would feel much better, he said, if you had had the second blessing. So would you okay if I prayed for you the second Second blessing. And I said, well, before you do that, like, is this a biblical thing? And he went to Acts chapter 8. Because that's what it says. The question is, is that normal? He's saying yes. Is it normal? Should that be the goal of our discipleship, is to get all of you to have a second blessing, to have a second moment? Should I pray over you and pray over you and pray over you until you have this experience? Well, actually, if you look at the rest of Scripture, one of the things that you end up finding out is that this idea of being a Christian who doesn't yet have the Spirit is not something that the Bible endorses. Uh, Acts, or sorry, Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone, listen, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So to be a Christian is to have the spirit of Christ. When do you get that spirit? All right, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized. Now this baptism is a reference to water baptism. In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. When do you get baptized into the body of Christ? At your baptism, right? Right? We were all baptized into one body, obviously talking about water baptism in one spirit, didn't matter where you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, and all were, when? At baptism, made to drink of one spirit. See, the one spirit in one spirit at your baptism, and you drank of one spirit. So when do you get the spirit? When you profess faith in Christ at your baptism, yes. When you profess faith in Christ, there's no, there's no gap there's no gap. So why is there a gap? In Acts chapter 8. What's going on? Here's why. In order for the apostles to recognize that the experience that they had in Jerusalem at Pentecost was the same experience that the Samaritans were having in Samaria. There needed to be a gap so that they, Peter and John, could get there 
witness it, and by witnessing it, they say, oh my word, we are equals. The spirit that fell on us in Jerusalem has now fallen on them in the same way. We don't have something that they don't have. It's like the spirit of God is saying, yeah, I'm gonna bless you Jews and the Samaritans and in Acts 10, the rest of the world in the same manner. There's no people who have a special claim on God when it comes to the gospel. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's the point. That's the point. Listen, it's basically like in, a, in the segregated South, if a bunch of white people were visited by an angel and they all received these massive blessings, they would be saying it's because we're white. And then they drive down the street and they see the same angel visiting with all the black people receiving the same blessings. What would be their conclusion? Well, maybe it's not because we're white. Maybe God loves the black people just like he loves us. Right, right. That's the message. And if that's true, listen very closely to me. If that's true, then the gospel brings unity where there's division. In fact, that's one of its key parts. It brings unity where there's division. You do know that the rest of the world is looking for unity right now. That's what we want. Desperately want unity. We, we want a way for everyone to get together and for us to have final peace I'll give you some examples of where. So if you go to the United Nations today and you stand outside the building in, in uh, New York, they have this on the wall. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall the, they learn war anymore. It's engraved. <laughs> they love the fact. They've quoted, it's Isaiah. You know, they've <laughs> quoted Isaiah down. That's right, it's from Isaiah. So basically, the United Nations is making this argument that, hey, guys, why is it that we have the United Nations? So that we can fulfill this Isaiah passage. We're all going to have unity, and nation won't rise up against nation. Um, how's that going? Good? You guys know? You ne- go to the United Nations, you're like, what a place of peace and joy. Really? Is that what's happening? No, that's not what's happening at all. But you can see the heart behind it. We want that thing to happen. When I was in college, early 90s, I... Um, I was applying to be the resident advisor to a dorm, and I was the only candidate that they had. They, they honestly loved me. They told me ahead of time, oh, this is going to be a shoe-in stuff. You just need to have this last interview. I'd gone through like four interviews with all sorts of things. They do these weird team-building things where they give you a thousand toothpicks, and you got to build, you know, the Eiffel Tower. So they put me in this last interview, and I'm talking to, to them, and they're like, oh, we just have a few more questions. Um, you've said in some of the things that you're a Christian. Yes, I am. Could you just tell us a little bit of how it is that you understand the, you know, homosexual, homosexuals and what their, you know, their activity is, is sexual beings and stuff? And I was like, you know, early 90s at the university, and I said, well, look, here's the thing. I think everybody's a sinner. Doesn't matter who you are. We're all basically sexual sinners, and we all need to repent. And I don't, I don't say that homosexual sin is any different than heterosexual sin, but it's all sin, and so you need to repent. We're all sinners. We need to repent, right? Right? Oh, okay, yes. Mm, that's wonderful. And so then they ask me a couple more questions, and I leave the room. 30 minutes later, one of them comes to me as a messenger and said, I'm sorry, we're going to go another direction. And I was like, whoa, wait a minute. This whole thing has been leading to this moment. What was it that I said? Well, you know, we just, we want unity, we want diversity, but unity on the campus and for everybody to get along and agree with each other. And I said, well, uh, yeah, so do I. That's what I want. Yes, but, you know, you said this thing about homosexuality. Yeah, but I'm for unity and, you know, I, I want to love and care. Everyone's made in the image of God and these, these sorts of things. And they, and they said, yes, but look, we want to have inclusion, but just with the right people. No joke. Just with the right people. What? What do you mean inclusion with just the right people? Doesn't inclusion mean that you include the wrong people? But you do see, though, the heart behind it, the heart behind it exists today where we want everyone to get along, and the way to do that is to push diversity and inclusion, and anyone who is not going to fit into diversity and inclusion needs to be excluded. But you can see the heart. They desperately want unity, just like I do. This picture I saw the other day, 
Protestant side of a cemetery, Catholic side of the cemetery over here. Protestants wouldn't allow the husband to be buried in the Catholic side. The Catholic side wouldn't allow the wife. So they built it along the wall. They built their graves along the wall and they made it. This is what we want. This is what we're looking for. That handshake where people of differences can be together. Where, Where do we find? Oh, where do we find it? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't care if you're a Samaritan. I don't care if you're Jew. I don't care if you're a Gentile. I don't care if you're black or white or purple or green or you're rich or poor. You got it all together or su- successful beyond measure or you can't get anything right. If you hit home runs all the time or strike out a thousand times, doesn't matter. All are one in Christ Jesus, we live in a world, listen, we live in a world that is very much like the plane. You know the plane where you walk in and they, they put the holy curtain between you and everybody else? And you walk by and those holy people in the front don't, won't look at you. They just look off to the side, you dirty thing, get in the back, right? And if you want to use the bathroom, you go to the curtain and say, can I use that one up there? No, that is the throne of God. You must go to the back. So... Separated off. This is the world we live in. There are haves and there are have-nots, and the have-nots don't get access to the stuff that has. But do you see what do you see what the gospel has done? It's ripped that curtain down and turned every seat into first class, baby. And we all fly together in Christ, receiving from him what is his. We're flying along next to the brothers and sisters from all the different backgrounds. There's nobody who's better than others. So listen, so listen. If you want to be a genuine Christian, if you want to be an axe kind of Christian, you need to own the idea that there are no differences between us, racially, socioeconomically. We are one in Christ, and everything we do as Christians should speak that way in a world where the divisions are so great, so great. See, we learned something from the Samaritans. Last one, in seven minutes, so good. You're gonna have to listen a lot quicker than what you're doing. Here we go. Simon the sorcerer. Now when Simon saw that the spirit was given. Remember this guy? I mean, he's got all the power and he's doing his juju magic and he's got people come to him, give him money and fame. He's called great. Simon saw the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands. (laughs) Hey, uh, I got a little bit of money over here. You could teach me that. You know what I mean? What's it going to take? Here, I'll give you the check. You write. You write in the number. Give me this power also so that anyone whom I may lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a power that he doesn't understand, hasn't seen before. But man, I want me some of that. I want me to be able to manipulate that. Can you teach me how to do that? So let's just pause for a second. Is Simon a genuine believer? Does he want Jesus... or the fame and accolades that he used to have through other means? Just hold on to that. Because we can answer the question by reading the rest of the passage. Let's see, what, let's see what Peter says about Simon. Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money, you have neither part nor law in this matter. This word right here is the Greek word logos. It means word. You have neither part nor lot in this word. Every other place that that word is used in Acts chapter 8 is about the Samaritans receiving the word. It's about the scattered going and proclaiming the word. What do you think he means by the word? The gospel, the message of the gospel. You don't have a lot or part in in the gospel. Your heart's not, not right before God. Wait a minute, you've been baptized. This guy's been baptized. Believer, right? From all outward expressions, believer, not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, oh, if 
possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven. You know, that's not the language that you use about somebody who's, no, who's not come to faith in Christ. That's language you use for the apostate. That's language you use for the person who's like, yeah, I believe, but then they run away. You say, hey, maybe, maybe the Lord will grant you repentance, 2 Timothy 2. If possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Is he Christian? No. In fact, if you want to do your study in church history, what we end up finding out is that Simon did not turn around. Is he a Christian? No. Well, if he's not a Christian, and Peter makes it sound very much that he's not, what's his problem? Even though he's baptized, what's his problem He was using Jesus to get something else. Which means that you and I can profess faith but not be a true Christian if we're only using Jesus as a means to another end. Oh, please hear me very closely there, please. We can be baptized, go to church, do all the stuff, follow around the team, but if we are using Jesus for another end, we're just idolaters. Uh, I used to do theology with my kids at fast food restaurants because we were always in fast food restaurants. And as a preacher, I like to use the stuff around you to try to teach some of the stuff. And so my son was one day drinking his chocolate milkshake at McDonald's, <laughs> sucking, it, sucking it down. And I stopped him and I said, son, Ethan, here's the thing that you need to know. That God is not a straw. He's the shake. God is not the straw. He he is the shake. God is not the means to get the treasure and blessing. He is the blessing. You use other things to get him. Yes? Time, energy, money. You do all that stuff in order to get the real treasure, right? He's like a treasure hidden in a field. You go and sell everything you have so you can buy that field. He's the treasure. He's the shake. He's not the straw. In other words, God is not instrumental. He's not an instrument to something else. To be a Christian means that you want God, means you want Jesus, means you want the Spirit. Not so that the Spirit or God or Jesus can give you something else that's your real God. Some people, we approach God like he's a vending machine, right? I mean, I'm going to my worship, and I'm going to plug it into the machine, and see, look at all the stuff I'm doing. God, you know, go to church, and I gave the money, and I didn't swear, blah, 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 and put all this money in there, and then, and then it comes down. You know, we put the button, and we say, I want to have a Pepsi, and it comes down, and then it comes out, and we're like, see, it worked. What, what if, though, you put all that stuff in, and then you hit the button, and it gets stuck? What do you do? What do you do with the straw that breaks on the side and you're sucking through the straw and it doesn't work anymore? It's not giving you the shape. What do you do? You throw the straw out. What do you do with a vending machine? You kick it like crazy. Tip it over. This doesn't work. Get on the phone. They stole my dollar. You get rid of it. Why do you think so many people are walking away from the faith right now? Why do you think? Why do you think? It's because they think God is a straw and not the shake. They think God's a vending machine. They put in all their stuff, and he's not delivered what they really want. And so they're running away. So many of you and me, we're in in the throes of suffering and difficulty, and the big question we have in our mind is, but God, I wanted this thing. I wanted happy kids. I wanted to win the game. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted a spouse. I sat across from a girl at a subway, and we sat there and ate our turkey melts. And she said she walked away. She was leadership a group in my church, and she, she walked away, and I said to her, what's going on? Why are you doing this? She said, you know what? For all these years, I prayed to God that he would give me a boyfriend, a husband, and he never gave me anything. But when I met this other guy, who happens not to be a Christian, wants nothing to do with Christ, when I met this other guy, I finally realized this was my chance. And I said to her, but don't you realize what you really wanted was him all along? You didn't want God. Well, you're right. That's Right? Right? If you use God as the means to another end, 
You're merely an idolater. Let me finish with just uh, these words from John Piper. He said, the critical question, this is in his book called God is the Gospel, the critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? Those who don't ultimately want Jesus won't get him. So do you want him? Or the stuff he gives you? We're Christian people, so we don't end on the sad thing. <laughs> we end on the happy thing. You do realize that the, the father scans the horizon waiting for his prodigal to come home, right? <laughs> Anytime you sit in a church and you get convicted about anything and you actually think, oh my goodness, that might be me. You know what the solution is all the time? Turn around, repent, turn around. That's the invitation is to Simon. Just turn around. God is awaiting you to turn around and say, no, I've, I've treated you like you're the, the straw, not the shake. That's all that he asks or expects. And when you do, he comes running to you and he clothes you in purple and he puts a ring on your finger and he kills the fattened calf because one of his has come home. So you're here today to hear what I just said. Maybe it's time for you to come home. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, your kindness for this passage. And there's a lot here, Father, and a lot has been said. And, but I pray, Lord, that you would use whatever it is that I've said here in the last few minutes. Spirit, would you come and would you use those things to apply them to the lives of my dear friends here. And I pray, Father, that you would help to move us forward in our commitment to you. Would you challenge us on the real reasons why it is that we, we say we have faith, what we're actually acting toward in our lives. We love you, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Harvest Bible Chapel in Chicago. For more information and how to get connected to one of our campuses, go to harvestbible.org. Tune in again next week for another edition of the Harvest Bible Chapel podcast.